0: Welcome to Blockchain Won't Save the World, the podcast that aims to demystify blockchain and exponential technologies with real-world examples for beginners and experts alike. Because blockchain won't save the world. We will. Hello everybody and welcome back to the best of Blockchain Won't Save the World Season 1. I've decided to take a look back over some of my favorite episodes and run down 10 of the best quotes or moments that I think are most memorable. It's 10 more things I learned about blockchain. I'm also going to share with you guys the results from our season two polls that asked the question, which country do you want to hear more about in terms of blockchain activity, companies and community, which yielded some surprising results. And I'm super excited to get season two started. But in the meantime, let's look back over what was a fantastic season one. Let's do this. At number one, probably the most important framework to keep in mind when you're exploring blockchain and DLT, the need to think about the three components of business, technology, and governance all together. Here's a short clip from episode three with Crystal Weber.
1: So when we say design, we're thinking about what are we trying to create at scale, much to the point you just made, and how are we going to get there? And we really see three critical areas of focus when we talk about network design. The first one is governance design, so thinking about the strategy of your network and the operational models that are going to support it. Um, the second piece is business value design, as you mentioned, so thinking about the commercials behind our network, what's our monetization strategy going to be, what's our strategy for incentives, how can we drive collaboration to really achieve network effects, because what makes these networks really, really successful are driving those increased transactions and collaborations in the network of people. Um, And then lastly, there's technology design. So we've got to build great human centered digital experiences that make people want to use the technology that we're creating and the products that we're developing.
0: And further to this, a warning from Niels Falk about the dangers of starting with blockchain as your terms of reference.
2: When you have a hammer, everything looks like nails. So we were very much aware that when you start off by saying, we have this technology, is there a problem it can solve? You will end up with a ton of problems that you just want solved that has nothing to do with the technology. And then it's a hammer and nail all over. So you need to do both things. You need technology looking for a problem. And then when you look at the problems, you need to readdress them and say, are these you know, really our problems? And then you have to take the problem looking for technology, and then you kind of have to make that. But so that was kind of the exercise getting the ball from one end of the court to the other back and forth a couple of times until we ended up with something where we said, "These, these are actually very, very cool use cases.
0: And number two, I was delighted to be able to showcase some real examples of blockchain technologies supporting sustainability and social impact worldwide. This is a hugely important domain for me personally, and I was fascinated to hear what the team at Proof of Impact have been doing to accelerate impact investing.
3: And that's kind of the thought process of the seed for me that really got planted on how you can allocate more capital to things like impact. So now that we have data about all these different types of things, how do we structure it in a way that it looks similar? So if you're trying to prove that a vaccination did, in fact, occur, there's really only a limited, finite set of data points that could be gathered about, in this case, a vaccination was there a picture taken? Is there a timestamp? Is there a geotag of like geospatial data of where it happened that could be grabbed from a mobile device? Is there notes from a nurse that confirmed that it happened? All of these different data points can be structured in a finite way that that then you can prove that the impact occurred and then put it into more and more interesting structures like a donation product so that if you wanted to donate to a vaccination, you know that you're going to donate specifically to that individual vaccination or to a fund, you wanted to donate to a a bunch of different interventions. Let's just say a child health basket, for example, which is one of the things we're doing now. It could be child nutrition. It could be outpatient visits. You can structure them into a basket so that people could donate directly to that. Or the broader vision, which is bringing it to impact investment products. So once you get this impact in a digital form, you can then kind of form more complex products uh, like impact bonds and impact funds and things like that.
0: And also being able to pair this with the example shared by Rodolfo Quijano from Henkel. These guys have a really diverse range of blockchain-enabled sustainability projects underway, and I'm excited to see what they do with it over the coming months.
4: So one of the things I'm proud of in working at Henkel is our commitment to sustainability, and we have an ambitious strategy there for 2030. There are three areas, social progress, energy and climate and material waste, I think the topic of blockchain characteristics of providing transparency, building trust, and making data tamper-proof can really provide this tremendous value. We would use that to basically help us improve and steer our activities. We go back to the topic of of the supply chain. And uh, what we've also been discussing a lot during the last year is how can we make all our efforts transparent to our consumers? So how do we stay true to how we sustainably make and package our products? We really think that's a differentiator for the things we do, especially on on the FMCG or the CPG brands that we have. And we can't think of a better technology than our immutable ledger of blockchain to put that out there.
0: At number three, an observation that I share quite frequently, public blockchain adoption still has a pretty serious user experience problem. And it was beautifully outlined by Brendan Cooper from Panini in episode 15, where he describes why their blockchain trading card platform is based on Hyperledger Sawtooth and not Ethereum.
5: The Panini blockchain platform is using a hyperledger sawtooth set up in a dual node configuration. We selected it because we we really liked how it could be federated. We liked the simplicity of the implementation. And as our development team started working with it, we found it well documented and easy to work with. We also had the possibility to interact with the chain with or without smart contracts. And using uh, APIs directly was important. Having the option to have a custodial control and be able to engineer that was important. At this point, I would like to say, so as we're going through the evaluation of the different possibilities, obviously, Ethereum is the leading platform with maybe the, the most users and has garnered the most attention. And I'm an advocate for decentralized technology. I mean, I'm, I'm all in personally. However, when we start looking at issues of scalability, that's relevant. Panini is now regularly conducting auctions on its e-commerce and mobile commerce sites where we're managing 300,000 plus users a minute. That's operating at scale. And we're not doing that on our Panini blockchain system yet. But what we do see is the potential for that. Now, the other thing is When we start looking at wallets and wallet technology, okay, we're going to the mass market and anyone that's working with the mass market knows that just about everyone's going to lose their password, for example. And having to articulate and at this early point in the development of this this crypto collectible industry, we see that educating people on a bare instrument and that your six figure NFT or crypto collectible portfolio is forever gone because you lost your keys. Uh, that's hard to communicate. And people don't want to hear that. Our customers don't want to hear that. When we embarked on this, you know, social recovery was an idea. And when you can give users the really sophisticated approaches to their digital collectibles, and maybe they want to be the sole custodian, and maybe they want to implement two or more factor authentication. Maybe they want to have Panini control the account. You know, there, there's lots of different options. And those simply weren't available when we embarked on this journey.
0: At number four, some essential guidance from Arvind Smith in what was the longest and probably the most deep and philosophical of episodes in season one, Arvind perfectly captured how impactful self-sovereign identity could be across a number of different settings, but that it will be very hard to scale, and also that it won't necessarily protect everyone's data in the way we might expect it to. Decentralisation in and of itself, by its very
6: nature, also carries a cost the cost of running the nodes, the cost of the various transactions, depending how you set it up, gas, the cost of actually executing the various actions that come with running a protocol. And then a final objection that I might raise is that although it could take the fuel out of the more extractive data business models that we're all very familiar with if we look at the headlines recently. It does not prescribe a solution to data processing requirements on the back end. If you give your data freely away, um, leaks can still happen. Or if someone is paying you to donate your data and you accept those conditions, that still means that your data is out there and you are forgoing the right to what it will be used for. I don't think that self-sovereign identity, no matter how cool it is, and I think it's cool, I don't think it will benefit from overblown claims. The biggest benefit of self-sovereign identity is interoperability, and that interoperability has two different facets it has a philosophy dimension, and it has a technological dimension. So as self-sovereign identity is a technical solution to be interoperable and be able to talk to, really, to other technical components, uh, which is an overlay to most of the, the products and services currently and institutions in society, it also has a philosophical dimension that if individuals have a deeper relationship with their data, if they would actually control it, then they set the terms for their own interaction with society and that is a very big shift. Because if you look at the alternative, that would mean that this technical capability, this philosophical, this ethical capability would consequently be missing. And we would always rely on third parties to tell us who we are. And what we shouldn't forget, and maybe sympathize with a little bit, is that governments have a very long development timeline. They're not just planning their roadmap based on the time it takes to develop the solution from the lab to the hands of the user. In parallel, they are considering the implications for regulation because our government. So it's more apt to think of governments like oil tankers. They're big, they move slow, but when they turn, they turn decisively. And what is more, they cannot go back. So when they turn, they need to be damn sure that this is indeed the path for them to follow. Companies struggle with different questions. The main one being, is privacy really a business model? And the challenge, which we just saw, is get pilots
0: do not test in the end of the day if the business model and government actually works. Number five, and this is my favorite quote from the whole of season one. I was incredibly lucky that Alison McCauley agreed to come on the show. And while we spent most of the episode 14 talking about the human and organizational barriers to blockchain adoption, Alison's call to celebrate the mundane usefulness of what this technology can do will stay with me for a long, long time.
7: This isn't particularly sexy, but I think especially now, it's really important to celebrate the mundane. There is beauty in the mundane usefulness. We're all excited about future use cases that will have dramatic shifts on lives. It's really important to understand that some of the most important stuff can happen in a quiet way behind the scenes and, and drive impact. So let's celebrate mundane usefulness.
0: Number six, I've gained a new appreciation for how mature the digital asset and decentralized finance space has become in 2020. We're not talking about system-wide disruption here yet, but the propositions and networks behind Signum and MakerDAO are live and scaling fast.
8: We essentially give you an IBAN, so an international bank account number, fully regulated, compliant IBAN. Alongside that, we give you a Bitcoin address, an Ethereum address, and in the future, some more uh, cryptocurrency addresses. So it really is that kind of all-in-one platform. And I think that's really important to understand, as Cora said, there hadn't been such a bridge before. And and that's why we do call ourselves a digital asset bank. Part of that is having a stablecoin. So for some of our customers that want to invest in the digital asset space, obviously Bitcoin, Ethereum, and, and other currencies are a valid way to get interested in that however when trading those assets and when wanting to use blockchains for value add features and I'll, i'll get exactly to what i mean in a second you generally want some stability so if you look at the price of Bitcoin, Ethereum, it's obviously very volatile. And it, this is a, a function of the market, right? It's freely traded, it's 24 seven, it's affected like any other asset. So then if you want to do some of the new exciting concepts that blockchains bring around, such as smart contracts and enhanced business processes, which all the blockchains are promising, you probably want something which is more stable than Bitcoin and the ether token. This is where stable coins come in. So one example of this that we like to use as everyone is talking about digitizing supply chains, if you look at something which is tracking a supply chain, at some point in time, there will need to be an exchange of currency or an exchange of value. Here, if you are using blockchains for all your transfers, and and tracking of the supply chain, when it comes to the point in time where, where money needs to change hands, if you then call out to a service like PayPal or Venmo or any of these guys, and no disrespect to them, of course, they serve their purpose very well, you've kind of gone against your own ethos there. What you've tried to do is decentralize your problems that you're having. You've tried to empower, let's say, everyone in your value chain. And then to settle the payment, you go to this third party. So with stable coins, what they allow you to do is represent fiat-based currencies. So for example, the, the Swiss franc, and that's what we have is a digital representation of the Swiss franc on the Ethereum blockchain. Then you can actually get perfect delivery versus payment. And that can be in terms of existing financial products, which normally take a few days to settle. It could even be in something like a supply chain or trading energy.
9: In DeFi and in blockchain, when you build an application on an open blockchain, you have free access to have your application interact with any of the other applications on the blockchain. It's a very big ecosystem already. So in the MEGA Foundation, which is the the organization I work for that's helping bootstrapping the MEGA protocol, uh, we have more than 600 partnerships already with all sorts of projects and startups and protocols um, that are all building on DAI and Maker in some form, but this is actually just, I mean, the, these direct partnerships are actually just the tip of the iceberg and the, the true extent of how much dye is being used and integrated around the world is actually uh, hard to even say because it's just growing so much every single day. One thing is like the, the absolute growth in terms of numbers, which I think is still, I mean, from that perspective, if you look at the total amount of dye in circulation, right, it's still only 120 million, which isn't actually that much for a monetary system. But when you look at the amount of startups and projects and new ideas, and just like the volume of innovation, it's really already something quite special, I think. A trend that's actually happening right now is other projects essentially following the path of Maker in doing decentralized governance. So having this concept of a decentralized autonomous organization where you don't have a single company making the decisions for the protocol, for the system, but rather you have a massive group of people distributed all around the world who run and control the protocols through what's called governance tokens and then vote with those tokens in order to make decisions in systems that have game theoretic mechanisms to ensure that you can't use these powers, but at the same time, you still have the ability to, to reach consensus on, on new ideas and just like adjusting the parameters of the, of the business model and business logic, for instance.
0: Number seven is a cautionary tale around thinking carefully about token based business models. Anne Griffin shares an all too common story from our Roast of Blockchain episode, which was the season one finale.
7: I won't name names, but I used to work within a blockchain accelerator incubator with a lot of other startups. And during my time within that incubator, there was a pretty large company um, that was not in the blockchain space that wanted to do things with smart contracts and additionally they wanted to do things that involved creating a token except for no one could understand why they needed this token they just wanted it and repeatedly people from different parts of the incubator that were trying to help them told them hey if you do this you're going to bankrupt yourself there's no reason for this token you're going to have people buy this token to purchase your services but people already purchased your services with fiat and they were trying to figure out. Okay, so if there's fluctuations with this token, are you just going to let your customers lose money? Are you going to pay them back? Like, how does that how does that work? And after I'll say like, o- like over a month of conversations with them, eventually they were like, "Oh wow, this is a really bad idea to bankrupt our company." Though so I, they didn't, weren't thinking about it that way at the time, but. At the time you know everybody thought tokens were very like sexy and fun and everybody needs to have one until you realize it's pretty much like heroin or cocaine it's like maybe not always like the best thing for you to do
0: and to add a layer or two on top of this i was privileged to have rob massey from deloitte share his significant experience around how to think about the tax and legal implications of tokens within blockchain platforms this domain is so rarely talked about, but it's absolutely essential if you're serious about getting into production, and it affects both businesses and their customers.
2: If we're answering the question, what's the thing, as I like to say, as we're designing, you know, what is the digital asset represent? Even if it's a security for a particular regulatory body, we have to answer the question, is a security for tax or what kind of a security is it? Is it a digitized piece of equity or is it a debt instrument or is it a derivative of some type? And so that, that collaboration between tax and counsel is key as we iterate toward the business model. And know that not all digital assets are created equal not for me to create a taxonomy of digital assets, but knowing that the changes in how a digital asset interacts with different stakeholders, the concept of a programmable fund, what it does, what are its capabilities, this drives what we would call it from a tax perspective. And again, what we would call it, what's the thing as we define it, it actually changes even based on the jurisdiction. We talked for a minute about security tokens a little bit, and, and I referenced the fact that you know some may be, in fact, a security as defined by tax. And by the way, there are different definitions of security with the tax lens. But having digitized equity versus debt versus a derivative, those all have different tax consequences, both to the issuer and to the holder in terms of revenue recognition and tax accounting methods stablecoin really being thrown around a lot and folks you know using that for for various purposes knowing that not all stablecoins are created equal we have some stablecoins which truly are digital representations of fiat currency there are others that are designed in a way to track toward the same value of a particular currency but aren't exactly digital representations of fiat currency some are you know driven by autonomous protocols almost like virtual monetary authorities right that institute you know buy and sell side transactions to keep things stable and so those are all treated differently again for tax uh, both to the issuer and the holder
0: at number 8 I was fascinated to hear from two organizations that are driving the Internet of Things, or IoT, and Smart Cities' blockchain agenda, and to understand the critical importance of affordable micropayments as the key to scaling. Firstly, David Sunstaber lays out IOTA's vision for IoT networks from episode 10.
10: And here, you, of course, you have all these billions of devices, and the question becomes, how will they collaborate? How can you make these trade technological resources like computational power, electricity, or data, which is kind of the oil uh, of IoT. And here you need transactions. And this is where the transaction part of IoT comes in, that these different devices need to be able to trade these resources autonomously. So they need to have a way to do that. And of course, Visa won't be the solution. Like These, these devices won't be having any Visa cards. and You also can't really have fees on these transactions because they are so minimal. So if I'm a sensor gathering some weather data and I'm selling it to a computational analytics host, then maybe I'm just selling it for 0.0001 cent or something equivalent. And that's of course impossible to achieve with traditional payment systems today. Whereas with IOTA, you don't have any fees on transactions. So what this enables is that all of these different devices can trade autonomously, all sorts of resources between one another in real time, completely for free, without any intermediary parties. And I think that is a very interesting world. And also, of course, that enables a more secure, autonomous world.
0: And then the husband-wife double act of Chris and Tram from the Mobility Open Blockchain Initiative, or MOBI, outline the three layers of Smart Cities blockchain architecture from episode 18.
11: There was a realization fairly early on that the biggest and most impactful use case was around uh, what you could do with connected vehicles. The realization that uh, machine-to-machine transactions would probably come first. Autonomous transactions would come before full autonomy of driving, uh, that it would potentially be more impactful, this idea of machine-to-machine communication and payments. So what would they be paying for? Well, they would be participating in an ecosystem where they're paying for roads, paying for services, paying for data? And that led to the development of the second layer that I was talking about, the open mobility network. Then also, uh, what do you do? What do you build on top of that? Build a mobility platform. That is Satopia That is the connection of vehicles with infrastructure, with cities to make mobility Greener, safer, and solve a lot of the very intractable problems of urban living and urban mobility.
0: Number nine, and it's one of the most surprising learnings from one of my favorite people in the blockchain space today. Keir Finlow Bates shares with us how to use your subconscious to solve problems in your sleep from episode 12.
12: When I'm reading an article or when I'm thinking about a concept, if a particular sentence sticks out in my mind, I write it down and then. Before I go to bed, I look at the last 10 items I have on a list and go to sleep. And then in the morning, normally I wake up and I have some kind of concept about what I want to say concerning that particular sentence or topic or question. And then I just go for the walk, turn on the camera and uh, have my initial intro and then just start talking. And it just seems to flow. The subconscious is really quite an amazing thing, and it puts together all sorts of bits and pieces in the back of your mind. And if you give it the chance to actually step to the front and talk, then, okay, sometimes a whole load of gobbledygook or gibberish comes out, but sometimes you can actually come up with a concept or an idea or an angle that uh, might be of interest to other people.
0: And finally, the tenth most notable thing I took away from season one is that I can't count. Or more broadly, that recording solo podcast episodes takes some serious planning and concentration, and that some sharp-eared listeners noticed that I didn't quite get my numbering sequence right in episode one. At number one, onto number two, number three, and number four, number six, and one that I definitely had to check myself. Number six, number seven, number eight, and then finally number ten. So there you have it, some fascinating insights from the first season of the show, and now to look ahead to season two. I want to continue to share real-world stories and help anyone interested to understand more about the impact of blockchain technologies having across the world, only I'd like to go broader and deeper. Blockchain Won't Save the World is going on tour, and I want to bring you episodes that capture the unique stories, community, and culture of blockchain from different countries all around the world. And I asked you, the community, to vote on which countries you'd like to hear more about, as a lot of the news and use cases that get reported tend to come from the same countries most of the time. And there's huge diversity in this space. And I really want to bring more of those unique stories to you and to the audience. I'm going to drop the countdown style and just go through the countries that you wanted to hear. And if I can cover more than this over the course of the next season, I'll be delighted. So, in reverse order, Malta, Switzerland, Canada, the Netherlands, China, Singapore, India, Germany, and then not wanting to create a ranking as such, but the two countries that were voted most important or most popular for you guys as a community, and with the exact same number of votes, and I promise this wasn't rigged, or at least it was the exact same number when I took down the final voting, Israel and Brazil two countries I'm super excited to hear more about, both with thriving communities, as do a number of the other countries on this list. And the point here is really to bring the unique stories, the unique culture, the unique examples, the unique implementation challenges of all of these different countries to you to help improve the understanding, to help learn from their lessons and to give reference examples of what's happening in the real world today. So that's the set list for season two. The format will be a little different and the cadence may be a little bit more spaced out but I'm really excited to get started. And finally, I want to say a huge thanks to all my guests from season one for all the support, the feedback I received from the community and to you, the audience, for listening in. Over 90 countries listened to the first season of Blockchain Won't Save the World, which was truly humbling and also shows that interest in blockchain is truly global. Stay safe out there and I'll see you all for season two. Thank you for listening to the Blockchain Won't Save the World podcast. All opinions here expressed are those of myself and my guests. If you're looking for more, you can follow me on LinkedIn for more blockchain related content. And until next time, stay safe out there.